Amen. Whoa, how you doing? If you have your Bibles, open up to the Gospel of Mark. So the first book in the New Testament is Matthew. So if you just move 28 chapters to the right, you'll get to the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to begin this morning by reading the first eight verses because we've got a lot to cover and I want to get right to work. I'm going to read the first eight verses, but I'm probably only going to talk about one. So that's just how we roll. So Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through Eight. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark. Now, in my former life, I was a high school teacher, and every year we had about 150 students, right? Six, five classes, six classes, I don't remember, a lot of kids. And I am horrible with names, horrible. So bad that literally, like, the summer after a year I'd have a kid, the kid sometimes would walk up to me, hey, Mr. Ford, I'd be like, Hey, you, how are you? I mean, I saw the kid for nine months, and I couldn't remember their name half the time, and that's how bad I am with names. There was a man, Hal Reesby. Many may know him, maybe not. He was the superintendent of Monroe Public Schools. And he, the legend says, knew every single name of every single student in the district. And it was actually true. Kids would come up and test him at football games, little kids, big kids, and be like, boom, boom, boom. He'd nail them all, had an incredible memory. That is not me. (laughs) I would argue that's probably none of you as well. For some reason, it seems like, um, at least as we get older, we forget names, but I think that it follows that most of us, just as a condition of humanity, we tend to forget the names, the faces, the people who we're not regularly in the presence of. Like if we don't spend time with them, if we don't look at them, if we don't study them, who they are is either forgotten or if we see them again, we're totally shocked. Like, oh gosh, you've grown or you were different than I thought. I think the same is with Jesus. Like a lot of us looked at Jesus perhaps a long time ago, or perhaps rather infrequently, that we forget who he is. I mean, really forget who he truly is. I would argue there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of people in our nation, perhaps a lot of people in this community and even in this church that know a lot about Jesus. But I'm concerned whether we actually know Jesus intimately. And that's why we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Now, because uh, I love first sermons of series, 
because I get to just front load it with a bunch of teaching on intro to kind of set the stage. So this is going to be one of those sermons. I'm going to give you a little bit of background to help you understand what Mark perhaps is all about and how it might be different than what we could be reading or studying. So as if you've spent any time with us, we have completed 12 weeks in the 12 minor prophets. Uh, but as we heard in the call to worship this morning, in the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it said, God spoke through prophets long ago. He said a lot. But in these last days, He has spoken through His Son, Jesus. And so it seems prudent for us to look at Jesus if God has spoken If God has said and is saying and will say everything there is to say in His Son Jesus, we should be looking intently at Him. So this is why we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark. And for some of us, it's going to be an introduction. For others, it'll be a reintroduction. So there is roughly, because the last sermon we did, Mike preached last week on Malachi, so if you were to go backwards, you see the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and that is the last prophet of the minor prophets. And there's about 400-ish years time between Malachi, the last minor prophet, and the arrival of Jesus. And as you remember, they had returned, the Israelites had returned from exile, and during their time in exile, before they came back, and Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi all kind of came and told them how to get their hearts right and their homes right and everything kind of right with the Lord. Well, during that exile, when the temple wasn't existing, it had been destroyed, they actually started to worship differently in these things called synagogues. That happened in the exile. You hear a lot about synagogues as you read the Gospels and you read the book of Acts. And after exile, despite the temple being rebuilt and the sacrifices that were beginning to be offered, they still worshiped the same way because the glory of God never actually returned to the temple as it once had dwelt. That was until Jesus Christ, the Son of God, walked into the temple, which we'll get to in the future. But after Malachi, during this time, God was relatively silent and different nations struggled to kind of control Palestine, this place that represented where Israel was located. And it started with uh, guys, oh, here we go, uh, guys like Alexander the Great. So you probably heard of Alexander the Great, died pretty young. But after Alexander the Great the Greek, you know, ruling his big, big Greek Macedonian empire died. It got divided from four into four kind of quadrants under four of his generals. And two of those particular peoples battled over Palestine, where Israel was, for several hundred years. Everyone was kind of fighting for control over this area. And for the most part, the Jews, as people were battling of who's going to be in charge, had a relative amount of religious freedom and they could worship as they desired. And during this time where people were battling over who was going to control, two groups of people rose up. The Pharisees, who represented a conservative group of Jews, very much committed to traditional Judaism. And then there were the Sadducees, who embraced the Greek way of life. And so these two 
groups battled against one another over kind of control of the worship and the culture, if you will. And eventually, uh, a couple hundred years, about 160-ish years before Jesus was born, some Jewish people got tired of being ruled, and there was a revolt. And you can read about this. It was led by a man named Judas Maccabeus. And they warred against the powers, and they threw off the powers, and they kind of won their freedom. It's celebrated by Hanukkah of this moment in history where they threw off their oppressors. But after they kind of began to rule themselves, a little bit of a civil war broke out between these conservative and liberal groups that still existed within the nation. And so they appealed, they took took a group of kind of Uh, representatives and delegates, and they sent them off to this young, growing empire called Rome. And they said, can you help us? And a general named Pompey said, sure, and came and conquered them and took over. And so, about 60-ish years before Jesus was born, Rome took over, and they began to put their own leaders in place, men like Herod, Eventually, men like Pontius Pilate. Herod the Great was in charge when Jesus was born, and Pontius Pilate was in charge when Jesus was killed. And so, we know the story, or you should perhaps or will be familiar with the story of Jesus. Jesus was born, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, and Christianity exploded underneath the Roman Empire. And a generation after Jesus rose from the dead, 30-ish years, so in the 60s, after Jesus had rose from the dead, the apostles are doing their work. Christianity had come to the city of Rome itself, and it had been viewed as a kind of an obscure little group A Jewish kind of branch. That's how they viewed it. And they saw it as very popular among the poor and the destitute of the city. So they didn't really take much notice of it, though it was growing. They didn't call it Christianity. They called it the people of the way. And this people were waiting for what they talked about as a new kingdom and a new king that would come. And so it was a little bit of a threat, considering the emperor viewed himself in divine ways. And so they began to be suspicious of this little Jewish sect, because most of the converts for the first at least 15-ish years were Jewish. And they began to be perceived as a little bit of a threat. And so uh, about A.D. 64, in the summer, about 30-ish years after the death of Jesus, Rome suffered a terrible fire, and three-quarters of the city was burned. And the rumor was that an emperor named Nero had actually started the fire himself. He was a little bit of a nut job. And... It was said that he set the fire for his amusement, but the people were upset, obviously, and they needed a scapegoat, and so in order to kind of deflect accusations and make the people happy, Nero blamed the Christians. 
And so began one of the worst persecutions in the history of Christianity. One of, but not the worst. As many of uh, the religious sect, these perhaps called Christians now at that time, were rounded up, they were put to death in the most horrific manners. And they were put to death at times even for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. Death included stoning, burning, being fed to animals, sawn in two, and crucifixion. By this time, most of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection had died. And more than likely, Peter as well. And this is the context. As churches are being planted, as disciples are being made, and as many pastors and Christians are being killed, God inspires John Mark to write his gospel. Most likely shortly after the death of the Apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down. That's the context for Mark. It's important to remember that. Now, in terms of literature, right, the, the book of Mark is a gospel. It's not the gospel, but it is a gospel. It's a genre of literature that's kind of important to understand. When we talk about a gospel, what we're talking about is a piece of literature designed to provide a record of the life and death of Jesus. And there are four inspired gospels, but not the only so-called gospels. There are lots of false gospels out there. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Barnabas, all kinds of things. There are four inspired, authoritative, given by God Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four Gospels are in total harmony. They are completely unified in what they teach, but they're not uniform, if that makes sense. See, in writing these Gospels, the Holy Spirit carried along these guys to produce what God wanted them to write. And so they're in perfect harmony, and yet there's a beautiful diversity to them. A uniqueness to each one. Like listening to the same news report from four different stations. Though the essential stories are the same, God used the personalities and the experiences of these gospel writers to reach different audiences in different ways, even for different purposes, but all telling the story of Jesus. And so each writer gives a unique portrait. Matthew. We went through Matthew. took us a long time. Love Matthew. This is a former tax collector who, if you didn't know, was like the iconic, if you want to talk about what a sinner is, tax collector. Like that was the example that we use. But he was saved by Jesus, and he was a teacher. That's why I really appreciate him. Tax collector, he's very organized. He has more parables about money and things than any of the other Gospels. Why? He's a tax collector. He likes numbers. But he's an incredible teacher. What he was teaching was in a very much of an apologetic way arguing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he was writing to Jews. It's a very Jewish gospel. Matthew wrote to teach though. And what I mean by that, he didn't just record what Jesus did. He actually recorded what Jesus said. That was his most 
like important aspect. He has the longest teaching discourses in all the Gospels. Matthew was really responsible in many ways to produce the first handbook of Jesus' teaching. 60% of the book is actually Jesus directly teaching. It's the second half of the Great Commission that says, go make disciples and teach them. That was his emphasis. Luke, he's a doctor. A Gentile doctor who wrote like an educated doctor to uneducated Gentiles. And it's been said that a minister sees men at their best, a lawyer sees men at their worst, but a doctor sees men as they are. He was funded by a wealthy benefactor named Theophilus who wanted him to write a two-volume set. First he wrote Luke about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he wrote the book of Acts, which is volume two. The story continues. He writes as a reporter investigating every fact because he wasn't an eyewitness. So he went and found eyewitnesses. It's the longest gospel. It is incredibly long. And it portrays Jesus as the Son of Man who is fully human and full of the Spirit. In Luke, the genealogy goes back to Adam. Because Luke is so much concerned with showing that he is, if you will, the better Adam. The last Adam. The everything we were intended to be if we were fully human as God designed. That's Luke. Each one's different. And then there's John. John's weird. And wonderful. But it's the most different of the Gospels. He is a Jewish Christian writing to Greeks. And he doesn't write a perfect chronology of events. He mixes it up because he has a different purpose with it. So Matthew and Mark kind of read fairly chronologically John does not. In fact, he declares his purpose, he's writing as a theologian to prove that Jesus is God. From the very beginning to the very end, he states it at the very end, I'm writing this to prove that he is the eternal Son of God. His genealogy goes back to creation. Matthew's went back to Abraham through David because he wanted him to show him he's the king, he's the chosen Man of faith, if you will. Luke goes back to Adam to show he is fully human. Man who can represent us as Adam did. And then you've got John who goes back to creation. He doesn't really have a genealogy. He's like, in the beginning, God. He was with God and he was God. And he created all things. And you're like, oh my goodness. We're going way back. So he writes as a theologian, 90% of John is unique to John. I don't believe there's a single parable in it. There are actually no parables. I don't think there are, there are no exorcisms. But there are many claims to divinity by Christ. So that's John. And so finally we have the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark was lit, written by, scholars believe, a young African man named John, who was also called Mark, John Mark, or just Mark. 
Mark first appears in the book of Acts, and he accompanies his cousin Barnabas, who is the guy who gave Paul a chance when no one else would. And he goes with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. You can read that in Acts uh, 12. And during the journey, young Mark abandons the trip. Takes off. Don't really know exactly what happened. But after they get back and Paul and Barnabas decide, you know, let's go back to all the places that we visited and all the churches we planted. And Barnabas says, cool, how about we take Mark? And Paul's like, heck no. He bailed on us. We're not taking Mark. And Barnabas is like, I think we should. I don't think we should. I think we should. I don't think we should. We're out of here. And so Barnabas and Mark leave. And Paul and Silas leave. You don't hear anything about Barnabas in the future, but you do hear stuff about Mark. Interestingly enough, years later, in his final letter to Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to bring Mark because he's become very useful to him. So things have changed over the years. Mark has grown. Paul has grown. Historically, scholars believe that Mark actually spent most of his time with Peter. Because Peter in his epistles calls him his son. And obviously he's not literally his son, but he is more than likely one of his young disciples. So the Gospel of Mark is historically believed to be actually the memoirs of Peter. Which makes sense because it's the shortest Gospel and Peter's kind of a dull head, right? He's just kind of like says stuff as you read it. It's very simple and straightforward. You're like, kind of sounds like Peter actually. Very short, to the point, not really embellished. Mark is often identified as Mark the Evangelist. And it's presumed that actually Mark died within a couple years of writing this gospel. He was, uh, scholars believe, the first bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, right, from Africa. So he went back to Africa. And shortly after writing this gospel, he returned and there was a little bit of an opposition to him. And so they put his neck in a rope and drug him around with horses till he died. That's how Mark went to be with the Lord. And so if Matthew writes like a teacher and Luke writes like an investigative reporter... And John writes like a theologian. Mark writes like a preacher. He is proclaiming. He is going, this is who Jesus is. He wrote from Rome and he wrote to Romans. You have to think about what Romans valued. Romans value power and Romans value action and Romans value conquering. And so Mark puts this portrayal of Jesus who conquers, and he's powerful. And for about half the book, man, he's taking out demons, taking out sickness, and Romans be like, "Woo!" And then he dies on a cross. Like, what? That's not the kind of conquering king we thought would be. And so Mark kind of sets him up. Mark writes the shortest gospel. It's the first gospel, uh, believe. It's the fastest gospel. 
It reads very quickly. It has very few Old Testament quotes. He explains nearly every Jewish custom that he brings up because he's writing to Romans and they wouldn't understand what was going on. There are 150 active verbs. The word immediately is used like 41 times. He immediately did this, and then he immediately did that, then he immediately did this. Interestingly enough, it's the gospel, though it's shortest, that has the most miracles in it. Why? Power! But in this gospel, there's no record of Jesus' birth, unlike Matthew and Luke. No record of his early life. In fact, it begins with his baptism at age 30-something. There's no genealogy. Why? Because Romans don't care about the heritage of servants and carpenters. He is proclaimed, yes, as a mighty king, but a king who conquers through dying as a service to his people. So the message of Gospel of Mark is actually characterized as this way, the best way to answer it. It's a 16-chapter answer to the most important question that anyone here and anyone living can answer. And that is this. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? You think about all the eyewitnesses are dying. These are the big guys, right? The Peters and the Pauls, all the original 12. John is likely the only one still alive. So he's writing this gospel because... Everyone who could tell the story of who Jesus is, is going away. And they want to get it recorded. So this is his 16 chapter answer of who is Jesus. And he answers the question three different times. The very first verse, in the very middle of the gospel, and in the very end. We'll see it. The first verse is packed full of so much information. Mark employs the word gospel in the first verse, if you saw that, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you didn't know, which, unless you're nerdy like me, you probably wouldn't know, but the gospel is an English translation of the Greek word evangelon. And you know, evangelical, evangel, that kind of thing. But it means news, right? News that brings great joy. That's what the Greek word means. And when we hear it today, our minds likely immediately tend to associate with spirituality in general or Christianity. When you say gospel, it's kind of attached in our culture to Christianity. But originally, this word actually was political in nature. It was around before Mark used it. He kind of takes it, robs it from culture, and re-employs it for God's purposes. But in the Greco-Roman world, from the time of Alexander the Great, who I mentioned, and into the Roman Empire, the word was used to refer to history-making, world-shaping reports of political, military, or some kind of social victory. Interestingly enough, an inscription found in a city in modern-day Turkey refers to Caesar Augustus, who would have been Caesar at the time of Christ's birth. 
And this is what the inscription says. The birthday of Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the Gospel. And so you can see what Mark is doing. The Gospel of Caesar Augustus, which was what we call the Great Peace or the Pax Romana of today, that was a huge age of peace during the Roman Empire. And how did they accomplish that? Through conquering. They conquered everyone else and said, now we're going to have peace because you're subjugated to us. And another inscription on a government building from 6 A.D., Right around Jesus' birth, Caesar Augustus is declared to be on this building divine Savior and the beginning of the good news, the gospel for all the earth. See, when you understand what's happening in history and when Paul's writing, you realize what he's doing in confronting the culture and its, quote, gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ was a direct challenge to the gospel of Rome, and I would argue it's a direct challenge to the gospel of America today. There would have been many in Rome who had really gotten tired of incredible over-spiritualization, self-indulgent, over-sexualization of the culture, and they were ready for this. Not much different than our own. So we titled the series Reintroducing Jesus in hopes of refocusing really on falling in love with Jesus again. And perhaps you are someone who has never loved Jesus. Maybe you know a lot about Jesus. You're familiar with Jesus. You might respect Jesus. You even might think that some of his teaching is great, but you don't really know Jesus. You don't love him. Perhaps you are someone who knows you don't love Jesus as much as you used to. Perhaps you're someone whose life experience has really shaken you and you've wondered if Jesus loves you. But whether you're a new disciple or a renewed disciple, Mark was written to take you back to the beginning and to reintroduce you to Jesus. So all I want to do is look at the first verse. I'll cover the baptism again next week and we'll recover that. But just this verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where Mark begins. Why does he begin there? Let's go, keep going. No, 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 no. No, yes. This seems like a really dumb thing to say. But Mark didn't think it dumb. The gospel begins with Jesus. Why does he say that? Why do I think that's important? Well, it might seem like a strange way to start until you consider perhaps your knee-jerk reaction or the different ways that you typically begin to share your faith or talk about what it means to be a Christian. Or perhaps the way others in our world might describe our faith. I don't mean your particular faith, but I mean the faith. There's a lot of other places people start other than Jesus. 
For some reason, Jesus almost has gotten lost in the noise of Christianity. Isn't that weird? Because Christianity is not primarily about changing the culture. It's not primarily about morality. It's not primarily about sexual ethics, prosperity, or politics. All kinds of things that may be the first things we say or others say about us when they describe the faith. Did you know that Christianity is first and foremost about the person and work of Jesus Christ? It seems like, yeah, no duh, but is it a no duh anymore? The gospel is first and foremost about the person and work of Jesus Christ, about his sinless life, about his substitutionary death, and about his glorious resurrection. That is what the gospel is primarily about. I say that because, guess what? And this would be Mark's contention. And it might have even been Jesus's too. We can talk about our traditions. We can talk about our doctrines. We can talk about our rules and our ethics. But if we're not talking about Jesus, we're not truly sharing the gospel. Now, in Paul's letters... He talks a lot about the gospel. He uses that word, the gospel, a lot. And he says that the gospel, a message of the gospel, is described as having power to transform us. He even says the gospel has the power to renew us, the power to grow us. It even can empower us against every barrier we might encounter. So he says the gospel. So, I wonder if we can also say, or if it's better said, that Jesus transforms us, that Jesus renews us, that Jesus grows us, and Jesus empowers us. I'm not sure that's how we talk, though. The gospel is not meant to be a means to an end. It's actually the end. It's the goal. The gospel is not about getting good gifts or getting a good life or getting into heaven. Did you know that the gospel is actually about getting God Himself in Christ? Very short book. You should read it at some point. It's called God is the Gospel by John Piper. And he says this in it, which I know is a long quote, but I'll read it to you. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. That's a powerful sentence. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. How many times do you talk about, when I get to heaven, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be with this person like, How often are we talking about Jesus being in heaven? Piper later asked a question in the same book. He's like, if you get to heaven and Jesus is not there, would you want to be there? The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Ooh. We better move on. We can't, live. we can't read that too long. That beats us up. But it's true. The gospel is about Jesus. Our faith is about Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus. You and I should be about Jesus. 
And I fear that we have become about so many other things before Jesus. Jesus has become an addition to it. Politics and Jesus. Morals and Jesus. Sexuality and Jesus. Can we start with Jesus? That's why we're hitting the Gospel of Mark. But the second thing to note is this. This is the other thing we get messed up on. The Gospel is good news about Jesus. That's what the word gospel means, right? News of great joy. It's a message. It's news. The whole message of the gospel is news about Jesus. And it's not just news, I've been saved from hell. That's not the news. It's a nice benefit. It's not that we've been saved from something. It's that we've been saved to someone. To Jesus. As I shared earlier, the gospel was a political term employed to report, report the news of great historical events that changed the listener's condition. It was like, bah, 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 this has happened. Like the victory of a war and a new king had ascended. It wasn't like, I'm, I wonder if I'll accept that. It, it happened. It has happened. And so the gospel is the news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history. It's not advice about what we have to do to be saved. It's not instructions about how to achieve salvation through three steps. It is something to accept. It is someone to believe. And so I... I know it's a silly question, but I think it's a good question. We need to ask ourselves if the person of Jesus is still good news to us. Is it still good news if it ever was? You think of the different kinds of news we get that we don't think about, like the news of the birth of a baby. It's joyful. It's not like, hmm. What do I have to do to be happy? It's, ha it's, it's joyful. There's a new life. Or a victory in war, or, or someone has returned from war. Like, there's joy there, right? Someone came and said, hey, your, your debt on your house is paid. You'd be like, what? That's news. And I wonder if after a while that news would no longer be good. It may not be bad, but it may get to the point where you're like, yeah, well, and perhaps you fully didn't understand the debt you were in at the time. See, the gospel is such good news because here's what it is. God says, you have to be righteous to live with me. And you are not. And so what do we do? I know, I'll, I'll, I'll clean myself up. I'm better than Joe or John, so maybe I got a chance. And you realize you're not much better than Joe or John. And so God doesn't say, hey, as long as you do X, Y, Z, you'll be clean enough to, to be with me. He actually does this. The gospel is not that we develop some kind of goodness apart from God. And that because we've done righteous things, we're deemed good and he owes us or accepts us. Rather, did you know this is the gospel? He produces righteousness in Jesus Christ and he says, here. 
just believe that I love you that much. That's the gospel. And that is good news. See, the gospel, as much as we want to reject this thought, because we're so stuck on following the rules, we get the order mixed up. The gospel is not that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good. The gospel is it doesn't matter if you've been good as long as you believe in Christ as your Savior. Because here's a newsflash. None of us are good. You might be better than you were yesterday, but you're still not good. And so when God says, yeah, nice try. Points for effort, but not really. Here's my goodness. Just accept it. That's good news. So the gospel is not a report of what might happen someday. It's not potentially good news. It's actually good right now because it has happened and is forever true. Last summer when I went to Oxford, I was, uh, <laughs> I was listening to Sam Alberry. He was going through Mark, and it was fascinating. And he said something that struck me, and maybe it'll strike you. He said this, if the message of Jesus, if Christianity, if your faith, if the message of Jesus feels like a hassle, like just too much, it means you haven't truly understood it. Right? Ah, it's just too, too hard to obey, too hard to do this. Like, you don't really understand the gospel then. Because the gospel tells us God loves us so much he plans for our failure. How beautiful. And when you know someone loves you that much, guess what? You begin to live differently without fear of failing. But even if you fail, you still can have joy because you know there's forgiveness. How beautiful is that? That's good news. So is the gospel still good news to you? Because it is good news about Jesus. And this is where Mark starts. And lastly, and this will be hit a little bit more next week as we begin to talk about what's going on with this baptism and all this stuff. The gospel is the beginning of a new beginning. Mark's gospel begins with Jesus and and John the Baptist as we see. And Mark indicates here that he's quoting Isaiah. It says that as, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet... But the quote is actually um, a combination of verses from Isaiah chapter 40 and actually from the last minor prophet that Mike preached on last week, Malachi, in chapter 3. So it's kind of an amalgamation of these two prophets. In Malachi 3, here's what he wrote. Sounds very similar to Isaiah here, but it's a combination of the two. So this is the, one of the last words, right, that, that God speaks through His prophets, 400 years of silence, and then Jesus shows up with John the Baptist. And so you see the connection. Behold, I send my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in which whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 
the messenger who we will see is John the Baptist that was foretold by Isaiah and foretold by Malachi is going to prepare the way for this servant of God who we find in Isaiah and elsewhere is actually God himself. To the Lord will come to his temple. More than likely, Isaiah is referenced rather than Malachi as the most important because Isaiah goes further to describe the kind of servant that this person's going to be. He's going to be a servant who dies. He's going to be a servant whose life ends so that there can be a new beginning. The arrival of Jesus marks the beginning of something. And a couple weeks ago, I talked about the story of God, this one story that's being told. And the Gospel of Mark is the beginning of God showing how He fulfilled all of those ancient promises to His fallen recreation, to His rebellious people that began way back in the garden. This is the beginning, He says, of the end and the beginning. He's not just recording the life and times of Jesus. It's not just a history. He in many ways is kind of writing the climax. It's the beginning of the end of God's story of salvation for the whole world. Beginning, right? That's creation language. In the beginning, Genesis 1. And he says, the beginning of the gospel He is saying something new is happening. A new creation is about to arrive. There is going to be a redemptive restart, if you will. A divine do-over. Now, every individual here, every story that your life is, right, has a beginning. And If we're honest, a lot of our beginnings really stink. They're dark. They have weakness and lostness and rebellion. There's certainly moments of joy and beauty. But every story in the beginning has a conflict, just like God's story does. And every story of our life has a conflict and brokenness and something to be fixed But did you know that through Jesus you can have a new beginning? That your story isn't over yet. That that new beginning can be something that's completely different than before. That's what resurrection is. It's not just a better improved life. It's a brand new life. The Gospel of Mark was written to Romans to reveal something new and different to them, but also something they could understand. A king was coming to conquer. And so they would go, yeah! We need a new king. Man, Nero is horrible. They hated Nero. So they're writing this, I'm like, yeah, our, our leaders are horrible. Like, there's a new king coming. That's right! Look at the power. Yeah, he's going to conquer, but... He conquers in a way that's completely different than how the first king conquered. You see, Christ comes and he wins our salvation by losing. 
He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes and he gives his wealth away. And guess what? Those who receive his salvation are not the strong and the accomplished, but those with the courage to admit they're weak and they're lost. That's a new beginning. And as we close, I want you to think about something. Many might think that a story like this, a foolish story about a divine servant king coming to die on a cross, there's no way that's enough to convince an unbeliever. Especially not a battle-hardened Roman. Oh, think again. This is what Mark is aiming at. And this is who I aim at for you who do not yet believe. The foolish story of Jesus Christ coming to die in your place on the cross to give you new life through his resurrection is enough to change you forever. When Jesus died on the cross, remember this is Mark writing to Romans. Romans reading this. No Roman's ever going to believe this. Jesus dies. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Yes, this story, and I even think the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to show you as we go into this study how to use this with those who don't believe in your life to reveal to them the truth of Jesus Christ. It does have the power to save even the hardest of Romans, if you will. But that's not all. The gospel of Mark is not just for the new believer. It's actually for the failed disciple. And I'm guessing we have a few of those in here. Earlier in his life, let's not forget, Mark, he was a quitter. He gave up. It was too hard. But guess what? By the grace of God, he has gone from a failed follower of Christ to a faithful evangelist and martyr. And he devoted the last years of his life writing a gospel that would, in our failure or our apathy, take us who feel like we've fallen flat in our face, that would take us back to the beginning, back to the basics, back to the beauty of a Savior who says, I died for that. I planned for that. The gospel mark is not just for new disciples, it's actually for failed disciples. And maybe that's you. I know I've felt like that many times. And I take great comfort in the Peters of the world who have failed royally and Lord loves, or the Marks of the world who at some point in their ministry gave up, quit, and yet God was not done with them. God's not done with you. God's not done with you. And I would tell you this, the way to restart is very simple. Not, okay, I need to start doing that. Just look at Jesus. That's it. Start there. My prayer is that Mark will be a blessing to you all as it becomes a reintroduction to Jesus Either A, the one you'd never met, or B, the one you think you knew, or C, the one you've forgotten. Amen.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power. We thank You, Lord, for the beauty of Jesus Christ. I pray that our eyes and our hearts will be lifted up, Lord, and we will see Jesus for who He is. That, Lord, this will be either an introduction for those who don't know Him or a reintroduction for those who have maybe ceased to love Him as they did once before. Lord, would You bless us with eyes to see and hearts to feel and ears to hear what You say through Your Son, Jesus. Take us back to the cross where it becomes once again, or for the first time, good news. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This morning as we continue our worship, we will participate in communion. And this is a uh, meal, if you will, for Christians, for those who have embraced the gospel, for those who know Jesus. And that doesn't mean you're a perfect Christian. It means you're a repentant Christian. You recognize how weak you are and how lost you have been and how Jesus provides everything that you need. And so if you are not a Christian, this is not yet for you. My prayer is that you will surrender your life to Jesus. And the Lord tells us not to take communion without truly measuring our heart and not to take in a manner that's unworthy. And so if you are an unrepentant Christian, you are living uh, as if you love Jesus but ultimately love your sin, I would, con- I would compel you to confess your sin for he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from righteousness, unrighteousness. And if you are out of unity with a brother and sister, especially in here, I would also encourage you to refrain, to make that relationship right because God intends for us to be a shared meal where we are sharing with our brothers and sisters in Christ our shared salvation and our shared hope that we have for eternity with him. If you have kids in Restoration Kids, please feel free to get them now. If you'd stand and we will sing to our Savior.